Well, hey, good morning and uh, welcome to Sojourn. It's good to gather with you. Mason students, welcome back. I feel like you guys have been gone for like forever. I feel like a, the longest break ever, but uh, grateful that you're back. Hopefully your first week of class was good and uh, getting ready for the semester, jumping in, but we're grateful that you guys are, are back in town and here to gather with us this morning. Uh, we're going to be in the book of Jonah, uh, and so if you need a copy of the Bible this morning, would you just raise your hand? We'll have a couple of guys bring a Bible around to you. Just keep your hand up uh, until they find you. Uh, and we'd love for you to be able to read along with us this morning out of uh, the scriptures. If you don't own a copy of the Bible, please feel free to take that with you. That's our gift to you. Uh, we want you to have God's word uh, not only here this morning, but throughout the week as well. Uh, and so as we get into our time, let's just go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to bless this time. Father, what grace it is to us to gather together this morning. A gift from you that you don't call us to be a bunch of disconnected people, disconnected individuals who have a relationship perhaps with you, but are alone, kind of floating along by ourselves. Lord, we're grateful that you call us together as a family. You call us together as brothers and sisters, that it's a, a gift throughout time as the church has been established for your people to gather together like this, to worship you together through song, to worship you together through the reading of your word, and, and now to worship you through the preaching of your word. And so we pray that you would use this time now to encourage our hearts, that you would use this time now to draw us closer to you, that we would have a growing sense of awe, a growing sense of wonder that you, the God of all creation, has made yourself known and knows us and desires to be in relationship with us and has made a way for that to be possible. And so I pray that as we open up your word this morning, that your Holy Spirit would fill us and use this time to bring about not a transfer of information, but actual transformation of our hearts and our lives. Lord, we know that we can't fabricate that on our own. We can't make that happen on our own. We can't change ourselves, but you, by the power of your Spirit, can change us. You bring new life, and then you continue to conform us to make us more like Jesus. So we pray that you do that this morning. Make us more like Jesus today, because we've been here this morning. So we just, we're hopeful, Lord. We're, we're expecting that you would do that, and just pray that you would bless this time, and above all, that your name would be made much of as we open up your word now. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. What comes to mind when you think of the word relentless? Relentless. I mean, you may think of a lot of different things because that word relentless can kind of have negative and positive connotations to it. On the negative side of things, if someone's relentless, they may be relentlessly pursuing you or relentlessly hounding you or relentlessly pushing you down. Or, or maybe you have the picture of hard-headedness. Someone who's relentless is going to continue to fight for something, go after something until they maybe get their way. Maybe when you think of relentless, you think of an Olympic athlete, someone who is so determined to get gold that she is relentless in her training and pursuit and will do whatever it takes, no matter what the cost happens to be. And it may seem admirable to do that, to have that kind of ambition and relentless drive, but oftentimes it does come at great cost. U.S. Olympic swimmer Amanda Beard in her book, In the Water, They Can't See You Cry, recounts the pressure and cost of such relentlessness. She says, even outside the pool, I saw the world as competition. And if I wasn't winning, I completely failed. The perfectionist drive that made me a star athlete in the water, out of the water, tore me apart. 
is I nitpicked every little aspect of myself. I discovered over and over again that I wasn't good enough. Man, have you ever felt that way? Maybe in school right now, maybe in your job situation, maybe because of your family dynamics. Sometimes the relentless pursuit of something seemingly good can actually be personally damaging to your soul. But being relentless can also be a good thing. For instance, a researcher who is relentless in his pursuit of a cure for cancer or for ALS, that he'll work long and hard and invest his whole life for the sake of and for the good of others. Or an inventor who comes up with life-saving technology like Otis Boykin who invented a critical part of the pacemaker that saved thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people's lives. Well, last week we started this sermon series in the book of Jonah called A Disenchanted Follower. And today, the title of the sermon is Relentless, because what we're going to see today is these two different sides of relentless, both the, the positive and the negative aspects of what it means to be relentless. And so my hope is, is that God will use this time in his word, that he will use Jonah's story to speak into your story this morning. That he'll use your, his word to speak into your life and give you hope and healing wherever you might need hope and healing. That he'll bring confrontation and conviction where you need to be confronted and where you need some conviction in your life. And that through all of that, for all of us, that God will use his word and use Jonah's story to continue to shake off the dust of disenchantment that might be present in your life and in my life. And so with that, let's go ahead and open up to the book of Jonah. We're going to be in chapter 1 this morning and really dive into this story and really see again this picture of relentlessness. So Jonah chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 1, read through verse 17, but focus our time on verses 4 through 17. This is the story of Jonah, God's word to you this morning. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to, them, said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me 
that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. Lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Last week, we saw the beginning of this story that Jonah, a prophet of God and a follower of God, is called by God to go and spread his global glory to an unreached people, a people who had never really been confronted with the truth of who God is, a people that were at the height of self-exaltation and anti-God power. It was a culture that, if we're honest, maybe seems pretty similar to our own American culture. The height of self-exaltation. The display of anti-God power. And Jonah receives this call to go, this call to be obedient to God. And instead of heeding God's word, he runs in the complete opposite direction. We said Jonah is a disenchanted follower. He's become disillusioned. He's become disappointed. He's he's lost his sense of awe and wonder at, at the majesty of God and the beauty of God and the power of God and the grace and the mercy of God, the God he knows, the God he has served. And in the text we come to today, the story continues. And we really see two main people in this story, two main characters in this story, and that's Jonah and God. Now, the sailors play a part too, but they're, they're really bystanders. They're kind of supporting actors to this drama of a story that unfolds in Jonah chapter 1, verses 4 through 17. This is primarily about Jonah and God. But as we said last week, Jonah's story is really a mirror for us and a window into the heart of God. It's a mirror for us because it reflects our lives back to us. We're able to see some of our own life in Jonah, but we also see the heart of God in this story. And so it is through Jonah and God that we see a picture of relentless disobedience and relentless rescue. And those are our two main points today, relentless disobedience and relentless rescue. So what's going on here in this story? What I want to do is I want to walk back through the story one time just to kind of get the intensity of what's going on here, to really get a sense of the situation that's happening, that's unfolding before our eyes. Because if we're honest, if you've grown up in the church, you may be familiar with the story. This is probably the most famous part of the story of Jonah. We know the fish part, right? Jonah gets swallowed up by some type of fish, and so we know that, but I I don't want to miss the intensity of what's actually taking place here. But then I want to walk through it again to really see what we can learn from God and from Jonah. Jonah has heard this call of God. He's decided to run the other way to Tarshish. And he happens to find a ship that's going there. And he pays the fare. Now this would have been a pretty ridiculous amount of money that Jonah would have had to pay to go as far as he wanted to go. This was all, all the way across the Mediterranean Sea that he was going to travel taken several days for him to get where he was trying to go. So it would have been an expensive affair. It would have been like today, if you go home right now and hopped on your computer and said, I'm going to just, I don't know, Sydney, Australia. I'm going to fly there today. I want to leave this afternoon. It cost you a whole lot of money, several thousand dollars. I looked it up this week. One ticket the day I looked on was $2,500. It was going to take me 42 hours to get there. Jonah doesn't think twice about that. 
He's not like, oh man, that's expensive. He just pays it and he hops on the boat and he goes. And so he gets on this boat and he goes down below and he, he settles in for the long journey, really content with his decision. But then this massive storm comes. The text says it's a tempest. This is a violent storm, a raging storm. The crack of the wood of the ship can be heard as it bears the blunt force trauma of this monstrous waves and wind and rain. And the sailors on the boat are freaking out. They're screaming and they're crying out to the respective gods. They're crying out to anyone who can rescue them. They're out there all by themselves. And so they're, they're crying out in prayer. If there's a God out there, would you say, us would you rescue us but nothing happens and so they start chucking everything overboard trying to lighten up the ship maybe if we can just be a lighter vessel we won't sink but where's Jonah in all this the captain of the ship goes down into the belly of the ship probably trying to find other things that he can chuck overboard what other cargo can he get rid of but instead he finds a sleeping prophet And he incredulously rouses him from this stupefying deep sleep and says, how in the world can you be asleep right now? How are you even doing this? And he says to him, arise and call out to your God. That's an interesting and eerie choice of words. Because Jonah had heard that before. Arise, Jonah, go and call out. The captain says the same thing to sleeping Jonah. So I picture Jonah wiping his eyes walking up on the deck of the ship. But notice no praying takes place. Jonah doesn't call out to God. He's kind of going out, surveying what's going on, and the sailors are still trying to figure out what to do, and they come up with an idea. I know, let's cast lots. Maybe this is someone on this boat's fault. The casting lots is not something we typically do, but how we could compare it maybe is, uh, is kind of rolling dice or flipping a coin to make a decision about something. So depending on how the coin falls, you're either going to kick off the ball or you're going to receive the kickoff. That's kind of what this casting lots looked like. And the lot falls to once sleeping, now silent Jonah. Stunned and perplexed and confused, with the sea still raging and the storm still pounding down, they look to their mystery passenger and they just send him a barrage of questions. They're kind of like, what in the world? Tell us why this is happening. What did you do? Where are you from? Who are your people? Basically, who are you and what kind of craziness has brought this kind of storm, this storm of death to us? And this is where I wish we had a a movie clip, kind of an audio recording of what happens right now. What was Jonah's demeanor at this point? So I picture Jonah here being strikingly calm with Water and wind smacking him in the face, drenching him from head to toe, raising his voice just enough to be heard over a howling squall. I'm a Hebrew, and I fear Yahweh, the God of heaven, who made everything, including the raging sea. Well, now these sailors are really afraid. Now they're they're really upset. What have you done against this God who made the sea? Why did you put us in this place? And Jonah tells him, I'm running away from him. I'm running away from him. And the ship is rocking and reeling, bending and breaking. And they say, what should we do then? How can we fix this? And in the same tempered tone, Jonah replies, throw me over. Throw me over and the sea will quiet. The sailors think he's crazy. Jonah had no real regard for life. He didn't regard their lives when he got on that boat. 
but they have a regard for his. And so they row harder, trying to get back to land, but nothing works. The storm just gets worse and worse and seems to become even more violent with increased swells and thrashing rain and a cutting wind. And so with no other options before them, they cry out to Jonah's God and ask for mercy in throwing him over. Now, isn't this interesting? In all of this, Jonah hasn't spoken once to his God. But these sailors, these unbelieving sailors have. They ask for mercy. And with that, they pick up this man and they throw him overboard into this, this raucous sea and it stops. The waves calm and the rain stops and the wind dies down to nothing and Jonah is gone, sinking beneath the waves and the water. Down he goes to certain death, to certain death. And notice these sailors now are in awe of Jonah's God. If they had any sense of disenchantment in their life, it's gone in that moment. They're in awe and, and wonder at this God, and so they stop and they worship him. A God they were once afraid of, now they have reverence for. He indeed is the God of heaven who made everything, including the sea. But that's not the end of the story. The most famous part of this story again, that we probably have heard before, maybe we learned as kids, is that this large fish of some sort, we don't know what that is, okay? We can't speculate on that, try to figure out exactly what that is, but some kind of sea creature comes and swallows Jonah, and he stays in the belly of this creature for three days and nights. And this brings us to the end of the story today, and it's intense. There's a lot going on here. This isn't just a cute little story to tell about Jonah hanging out in the belly of a fish for three days. They almost died. They were almost completely obliterated. So there's so much emotion, so much action going on in here. And in it, there's a lot for us to learn. In this part of the story, we see a picture of relentlessness. We first see a picture of relentlessness in Jonah. He is relentlessly disobedient. Relentlessly disobedient. And Jonah is determined. He's he's adamant. He is dead set, inflexible when it comes to running from God. He's relentlessly disobedient. He's locked in his sin. He's unable to see straight and to follow his God and faith. And we see this in a few different ways. As the storm comes upon the boat, the sailors are terrified, but Jonah is peaceably asleep. They, they even have some fear of the divine. They don't know who it is, but they believe this is something as a result of some God that's doing this. And so they call out to these false gods who can't really help them. But Jonah is asleep. Maybe he's, he's even hiding in his sleep. Have you ever done that before? There's something challenging going on in your life, something you don't want to deal with in your life, maybe a relationship or a work situation, your family or your finances, and so you oversleep, you, you, you seek to pass the time through closed eyes, and I know I've done that. There, there have been moments, even over this last year, that I've been anxious, that I've even battled what I, what I would call kind of high-functioning, low-grade depression, and there's nothing I'd rather do than just be asleep. Just pass the time. Stay asleep. And finally, when Jonah is awakened by the captain and called on to pray to his God, what does he do? Not pray. Not pray. But that shouldn't be surprising to us, because how could he? How could he? Jonah knew the Lord. He 
He knew that he could call on him for help when he was in the midst of of difficulty, but right now he's in the midst of rebelling against him. So to go to God in prayer, to go to him and ask for mercy in this moment, he has to acknowledge his rebellion. He has to acknowledge his sin and his running. But instead of pleading to God for mercy in this moment, he continues in relentless disobedience. Have you ever been there? Ever felt that way? How many times in your stubbornness do you refuse to go to the one who loves you and can actually bring hope and healing in your life? I think it's interesting here. How interesting is it that that you have a a non-believer, someone who doesn't follow Yahweh, doesn't follow the living God, encouraging and exhorting a believer to be consistent in his own faith? Look, if this is what you believe, then why would you not call out to your God? And so the sailors decide to cast lots to see whose fault this might be. And notice again what Jonah doesn't do. He doesn't speak up in this moment. The sailors have, have said, we've got an idea, let's do this. He doesn't say, listen, you know what, guys, you don't need to do that because I know exactly why this is happening. This is, this is on me. This is because of me. It's because of my rebellion and my sin. We don't need to, to cast lots for this. No, with lips sealed, stoic and silent in the face of certain destruction, it seems as if Jonah would rather die along with these sailors than take ownership and confess what is really going on and praying and asking for forgiveness and grace. It's relentless disobedience. And so they fire off these questions at Jonah and he responds with a testimony, I am a Hebrew and I fear Yahweh, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. So you notice here, Jonah says that he fears the Lord. He says that he has a reverent fear of God. But this is just rote religious response. It's what he's supposed to say. It's what he's supposed to say. But it's not the reality of his heart. There is no brokenness over his brokenness here. It's a hollow confession rooted in relentless disobedience. And oh, how many of us have been there before. We know the right answers. We've memorized scripture, maybe. We have a good theological understanding of who God is, but our heart is disconnected from our testimony. Uh, We can say it with our mouths, but our lives don't evidence the fact that we really believe this to be true. Maybe we even testify to people who don't know our God and we say we're Christians, we follow Jesus, and he's the most important thing in my life, yet we do so while engaging in sin with them or overlooking sin in our own lives. It could be drunkenness or gossip or sexual immorality or materialism or just shady ethics. What we say with our mouth doesn't match up with the reality of our hearts. So the storm rages on, and they say, what shall we do? Throw me over, Jonah says. Another interesting response from Jonah. I mean, we could look at this and think, man, what a noble thing for Jonah to do. He's finally coming to grips with what's going on here, and he's willing to sacrifice himself on behalf of these sailors. But I don't think that's what's actually going on here. See, what we have, maybe the beginning of, is an acknowledgement of sin, but there's no repentance friends, we have to be careful never to confuse confession with repentance. See, repentance is turning away from your sin and turning to God in faith. Jonah still, at this moment, still has not uttered a word to the God he's been running from. 
He's confessed it. It's like going to community group and confessing our sin to the people we sit around a group of, but never actually going to God with that. Never praying and asking for God's grace and his mercy and that he would renew our heart and our affections. And that's all of our life. Our whole life is one of repentance and faith, turning from our sin over and over again and turning to the grace that God gives us over and over again. But Jonah doesn't cry out to God. He says, let me drown. Let me drown. See, death still seems better than obedience at this point. At the end of the day, Jonah's ministry had been silenced by his secret sin. And he was okay with that. He was relentless in his disobedience. There's a famous poem called Invictus by William Henley, and you probably have heard parts of it before. Two lines in this poem say this, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. This is the mantra for Jonah. God, I know you. I know your will and your ways. I I know the joy that it actually is to live out your will and live out and walk in your ways, to seek to be a part of your advancing your global glory. But today, God, I choose me. I choose me. I want my glory. I want my comfort and my pleasure. And I don't care what it costs me, even my life. I'm willing to give it all up instead of turning back to you. This is the battle cry of relentless disobedience and sin. But it always ends the same way. Death. In James chapter 1, James says basically the same thing. Temptation gives birth to sin and sin leads to death. See, in Jonah's disenchantment, he had lost a sense of awe of the greatness and glory of knowing God and being known by Him. And so he chased after other things. There's a spiritual disintegration that is taking place in Jonah's life as he drifts literally away from the presence of the Lord. It's a slow breaking down. Recently at our house, we, had, we have like a local newspaper that's delivered to our house. And most of the time, I don't read it. I just throw it away. But for a while, for whatever reason, I left it out. And then it rained and we were backing over it, back and forth and still not picking it up, and then the bag shredded, and then the paper started shredding. And every time I thought about it, it was, just, it was raining, so there's these clumps of newspaper kind of all over the place. But it was just disintegrating before our eyes. And you know what? I, never, I still never picked it up because eventually it was just gone. I know. <laughs> but that's kind of what's going on here. There's just this slow disintegration, the spiritual breaking down of Jonah. Just being torn apart piece by piece where slowly there's not much of anything left except a shell of a man. Just disintegrating right before our eyes because because he isn't rooted in truth. He isn't rooted in love. He isn't rooted in God. And so he compromises and he disobeys and he runs away relentlessly so as he continues to fall apart. And we shouldn't be surprised by this either. Hebrews chapter 3 says that sin is deceitful. Sin never tells the truth about where it's going to lead you. And it says that when sin is so deceitful that our hearts become hardened by it, by its deceitfulness, where it becomes so difficult for truth to penetrate our hearts, for anything to grab a hold of us and get our attention. I think all of us have been there. And maybe some of us are there right now. See, Jonah still feels it would be better to perish than preach the gospel to the people of Nineveh. 
But see, the one who needed the gospel the most in this moment is Jonah himself. There are two results that we see with relentless disobedience that were present in Jonah's life. And if you're in that place this morning of relentlessly disobeying God, then my guess is these are in your life right now as well. Two things, apathy and hiding. Apathy and hiding. We don't care about the things of God. We're apathetic towards them. And so we find ourselves hiding from God and from others. And these are some of the two greatest tools of our enemy Our enemy hates you. He hates everything about you. When you're seeking to walk in obedience to God, the thing he wants most for you is to be from and away from his presence. And so he knows that you can be growing into an apathetic mindset. He knows that you can start to hide. And so he'll whisper those things into your heart, into your ears, saying, you can't tell anyone about this. You can't let people know what's really going on in your life. What would they think of you? If you call yourself a follower of Jesus, you don't look like one right now. You better get your act together on your own. And so we continue relentless in our disobedience. And as we continue down that path, we increase in our apathy and we become masters at hiding. And we can be hiding the big things, but maybe it's the seemingly innocuous stuff, the the respectable sins. This should be the most scary to us. Pride, gossip, laziness, selfishness, lust, self-importance. Things, generally speaking, we're okay with, and so is everybody else around us. And I can say that to you because I've been there. I've struggled with all of those things before. See, Jonah's hiding, and our hiding shouldn't be surprising to us. We can go back to Genesis chapter 3 and see hiding taking place. As Adam and Eve chose chose to advance their own glory, chose themselves over God, what came about that? They went and hid from God. They grow apathetic towards who God is and his good ways, and then they hide from him as he comes to seek them out. See, too often you and I are concerned with self more than soul. We're concerned with ourselves more than our souls, and that's a problem in the church. It's a problem in our world, because when we focus on ourself, we miss the God who cares for our souls and the souls of those around us. And that's what happens with Jonah, and it can happen with you and me too. See, Jonah is seeking to leave God, but God does not leave Jonah. Jonah is seeking to run away from God, but God is running after Jonah. Which brings us to our next point, relentless rescue. See, the book of Jonah is not just about Jonah, it is about God. He is front and center in this story, and particularly at this part. If you look back at your text in verse 3, it says, but Jonah rose to flee. But then what does verse 4 say? But the Lord hurled this storm upon the sea. That's what he does. He brings this wind and this storm on the sea. For what reason? This storm is, is both a storm of judgment and grace. It's discipline and rescue. God is coming, relentlessly pursuing his prophet. He sends this storm that's so intense that it almost breaks apart the ship that Jonah is on. But this ship is a means of grace to Jonah. It's a means of rescue for Jonah, but not in the way Jonah thought it was. This is a good point to be reminded of what we touched on last week, that you and I cannot be guided by seeming providences in our lives when we are refusing to be guided by God's word. It's God's word that is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. But maybe we can look at this as even arguable, but there's still some fruit that comes out of this. 
I mean, these sailors who didn't know the living God, they seemed to start to worship him, so something good came out of this. But let's never confuse fruitfulness with obedience. God can overcome our disobedience. He can overcome our sin and still use us for his glory even when we're not living a life that's pleasing to him. As one pastor said, beware of mistaking usefulness for God with communion with God. See, Jonah wasn't in a place to hear from God. He wasn't attentive to the Spirit. But God used a storm to get his attention. God used a storm to get him back. Man, has God ever done that in your life? Is he doing it in your life right now? God can use or bring storms into our lives in order to chase us down and grab our hearts. Now, I want to be careful, careful here because I don't want us to believe that a storm, whether literal or figurative, in our life is always a result of our disobedience and our sin. In Jonah's case, that's true. Jonah is relentlessly disobedient, and so God brings this storm to get his prophet back, to get this man back. But that's not always the case. It's not always because of our disobedience. And we see this in Scripture, too. Mark chapter 4, Jesus calls the disciples to get into a boat and go across the sea, and a storm comes up. They did exactly what they were told to do, but still this storm rages so that God's glory might be on display. It happens to the Apostle Paul as Paul is going to advance God's global glory. He got on a boat to go tell people about Jesus, the opposite of what Jonah was doing. But a storm comes up, and it threatens to tear on the same sea that Jonah's on. It, comes to, it threatens to tear this boat apart, but, Jonah, I mean, but Paul goes up and he prays to God. He's seeking to walk in obedience, and God affirms his calling through the storm. See, what is always true, what we can never forget, no matter what the reason is for that storm, and we may not even know exactly what it is, what we can know for sure, though, is that God is always at work in the midst of it. Because in the storms of life, we are stripped bare of any pretense, of any veneer of being okay. Man, we're so good at that, just pretending that everything's okay. And the storm comes into life, it strips of, of any veneer of being okay, of any sense of self-dependence, any notion of self-reliance, and it leaves us exposed, and we have what we have. See, the longer you live, the more storms you'll encounter. Recently, I've walked through a challenging season of life and ministry, and there have been moments in that time, in that point, where I've asked myself, is it worth it? Is it worth it to keep going? Is it worth it to keep seeking to be obedient to what I believe God is calling me to? Because sometimes, if I'm honest, it doesn't seem like it's worth it. This is too hard, God. This is too painful. I'm just going to go do something else. I'm going to go run somewhere else. And a friend of mine, in the midst of this particular storm in my life, he asked me this question. He said, Justin, if God takes everything away, will you be okay? If he strips everything away from you in this moment, will you be okay? And I had to pause and I had to honestly think and wrestle with that. Would I? Would I really be okay? See, it's been in moments of despair and desperation that God in his kindness has said, yes, you will because I'm here. And I'm never going to leave you and I'm never going to forsake you because I love you and I care for you. This pastor Tim Keller has famously said, you don't realize Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. 
See, when God exposed Jonah, it was the beginning of hope and rescue for him. Because even in the storms of life, God is rescuing, often rescuing us from ourselves. And for me, walking through this extremely hard season, I had to say with all honesty, that was awful. I don't ever want to go through something like that again. But if I'm honest, I don't know if I would have learned, if I would have listened, if I would have learned about God and learned about myself in the way that I did if I hadn't gone through that. Because I was focused on other things. Maybe I wasn't paying attention and this is what God had to use in my life because I am Jonah. I'm so very thankful that God is God. See, sometimes in the midst of a storm, we can doubt that God loves us. All we see and hear is the wind and the waves and the cracking of the ship around us. But it's in those moments that we need to remember, and maybe better yet, we need to be reminded. And that's why we're together as a community. We need each other. We're desperate for people around us to remind us of the truth of who God is. That he is the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That's who our God is. And he is relentless in his rescuing, and he will use and do anything to achieve his good purpose for his people, which is to renew his image within you, to make you more like Jesus. Sometimes my boys uh, want to play hide-and-seek at our house. And our, our house, if you've been to our house before, you know this if, if you haven't, our house has a pretty open layout, so there's not a lot of great places to hide in our house. But they want to play. And so I'll count, and they'll run off in somewhere to hide, and, and I come looking for them, and two things always happen. They hide in the same spot, because <laughs> there aren't that many of them, and they just aren't very good at hiding. They're under a blanket or behind some pillows. They're in the bathroom, and there's always a lot of whispering and giggling going on. (laughs) And so it isn't difficult for me to discover where they are. And same for you and for me with God. We might try to hide, but in, in the end, we just aren't very good at it. And God is a master at finding hiding people. He's a master at it. And he will do anything to get you back. Even break a ship apart. Even break your life apart. And so it's in that moment that we have a choice to make. It's in that moment when the storms come into our lives that we have a choice to make. We either believe that God is lovingly in control, that he cares for us, that he has our best in mind, or he is a helpless and heartless observer. And see, that is why we can't miss what happens in in this story. God brought the storm, but also the means of rescue. See, Jonah resigned himself to death by drowning, but God appointed a fish of salvation to save him. And friends, hear this this morning. He is and will do the same for you. He is relentless in his rescuing. He is ferocious in his coming after you. He is unremitting in his commitment towards you. He is single-minded in his devotion, adamant in his care, unwavering in his love for you. Not because you deserve it. It's not because you're worthy in yourself to get it. You're a mess. And I can say that because I'm a mess. No, it's not because we deserve it. He does it because that's who he is. And that's what he does. 
He did it in Jonah's life when Jonah wasn't even looking for it, wasn't even interested in it. And he'll do it in your life too, to bring you all the way home, to complete the good work that he began in your life. Now, in some ways, we could look at this story and we could say, well, Jonah is kind of a type of Jesus. He's a type of Jesus because Jonah lays down his life and he saves some other people's lives. But Jonah, if he is any kind of type of Jesus, is not a very good type of Jesus because Jonah actually needs Jesus. See, Jonah was selfish, but Jesus is selfless. Jonah was concerned only with his life, but Jesus is concerned with our lives. Jonah had great sin, but Jesus knew no sin, had no sin, but took on our sin, paying for it in full on the cross. And so when you doubt God's love in the midst of a storm in your life, you need to remember at what lengths God has gone to to demonstrate his love for you. Romans 5, 8 says that while you were still sinning, relentlessly disobeying God, he showed his love for you by sending his son to die for you. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin are death. We can get that part. Jonah, you kind of deserve to die because of your disobedience, but we miss the second part. We forget it. But the free, free, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So God is relentless in his rescuing. He has and is and will come after you at all costs because he loves you. So let me ask you a question. Where Or how might you be hiding from God right now? It could be behind good things. Where or how are you hiding from God right now? Where are you experiencing a storm in your life right now? Church, God disciplines us because he loves us. It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And maybe you find yourself this morning never having truly repented or believed the gospel ever. You've never placed your trust in Christ. That's where the sailors were. This crew felt the impulse that lies at the center of every human heart in a time of trouble. They cried out for help. But as one pastor says, gods who are a projection of our own hopes and fears cannot exceed the limits of our own power. By definition, they cannot save. And so all of us have this this decision, this choice. We can refuse the only sacrifice for our salvation or we can think that we can save ourselves. But that's impossible. And apart from divine intervention in your life, you will be lost at sea. But God has made a way. So would you turn to him today, this relentlessly rescuing God, would you turn to him today? And I want to invite you to do that maybe for the first time today. But brother, sister, I'm speaking to you too. Would you do it if even it's the thousandth time that you've done it? Not to be saved, you already have that salvation, but if you've been running for God, would you turn to him today in repentance and faith? Because God is coming for you. See, Jonah had lost a passion for God. He'd become disenchanted, and in his disenchantment, he relentlessly disobeyed. And I confess there have been many times, many times in my life, in my ministry, even as pastor at this church, that I've lost a zeal for God, lost a zeal for his fame and his glory, that I've cared more about my own glory than his. Man, I am so 
thankful that God does not cast me off. No, he has been and is relentless in pursuing my heart and rescuing me from me. And to that I say, praise God. See, Sojourn, when we begin to grasp the immensity of God's love for us and what cost he came after us and still comes after us, then and only then will we be captivated by the grand vision and see, of God and see the dust of disenchantment shaken off of us so that we might live for his glory and for the good of others around us. Are you sleepy, friend? Wake up this morning and arise and call out to the God who can save you and rescue you and restore you. Wake up, sleepy Christian. Wake up, friend, if you've never known the living God. Wake up and behold the glory of the God of heaven who has made all things and holds all things together, even your very own life. He is worthy and he is worth it. As we come to the table now, we come to a meal that reminds us and imparts to us grace from God, from our relentlessly rescuing God. Eating the bread and drinking the cup remind us of the great cost with which the Father endured and the Son took on to overcome our relentless disobedience. And so let me say this to you this morning. If you know that you've been running, if you know that you've been hiding, if you know that right now in your life there's an area of relentless disobedience that you have not laid down, lay it down today. Before you come to the table this morning, lay it down, confess that to the Lord, and then come to the table to receive this grace, to eat and drink this morning, this meal of grace to you, because in it you get to experience the presence of our gracious Redeemer. As you eat the bread, remember that Jesus' body was broken for you. As you drink the cup, remember that Jesus' blood was shed for you so that you might become a child of God. And then after that, after we eat, after we drink together, let's stand up and let's sing. Let's sing and celebrate with zeal, with joy. Let's sing loudly. I don't care if you sound good or not. Nobody's going to notice that. Man, sing with the emotion of what it means when you wrap your heart and your mind around the fact that a relentlessly rescuing God has sought you out and brought you home and will bring you all the way home. Man, let's rejoice in that. We once were lost, but are now found. We once were blind, but now we see. And if you're not a follower of Christ, I just ask you not to come forward this morning because this meal is a celebration of the fact that we are desperately in need of God's grace. And so if you've never acknowledged your need for Jesus, then I just want to ask you to hang out in your seat and call on him today. You can start a relationship with Christ today. You can just pray and acknowledge your need for him, need for rescue. And then let somebody know that so that we can walk alongside of you in life and help you understand what it looks like now to follow Jesus. And next week you can come forward and celebrate communion with us. And those of you that will come forward, you can come to the front or the two tables in the back. Tear off a piece of bread, take a cup to drink, and hear what Jesus has done for you. Let's pray. Father, this morning... We come and we confess our sin to you. We confess, I just on behalf of us collectively confess our sin to you. God, we regularly choose other things over and above you. We regularly choose to worship other people, other things, 
even ourselves over and above you. But God, you alone are worthy of our lives. You alone are worthy of our worship. Lord, we confess where we are relentlessly disobedient. Father, we ask for your grace and ask for your forgiveness and we're thankful that you lavishly give it to us in Christ. Lord, help us to walk away from apathy, that you'd reinvigorate our hearts again, that you would draw us into a sense of awe and wonder at your relentless rescuing. Help us to come out of hiding, to confess to one another and truly walk, not just in confession, but in repentance in community with one another and before you. Lord, we praise you this morning even as we wander away, as we drift off, as we start to disintegrate, that you come after us at whatever cost because you love us. Lord, we praise you for that and we praise you for Christ, your son, our king, who came for us. We pray all this in his name. Amen.